Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Day Schildkret, visual artist, educator, and founder of Morning Altars, a practice of creating impermanent earth art. Day has been captivated by nature and art ever since he first viewed the work of Andy Goldsworthy as a child. His very first altars were on the side of his driveway after every rainstorm, where his five-year-old self was devoted to saving the displaced worms by digging little holes and then decorating them in a mandala-like fashion. But it wasn't until a major relationship breakup that he began to cultivate morning altars as a daily spiritual and beauty-making practice, as a way to process his grief and heartache. For much of his adult life, Day has been traveling three distinct but converging paths of art, nature, and education. On the artistic road, he worked on and off Broadway from 2001 to 2007, all the while building nature-based art installations at festivals and venues such as Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, and the Wisdom 2.0 Conference, among others. During the summer of 2016, he was the featured visual artist and teacher for the Wanderlust Festival, a North American yoga and music festival that hired Day to create large-scale morning altars installations and facilitate workshops for thousands of participants. As an educator and public speaker, Day began his career teaching teenagers and mentoring them to connect their spirituality with a deeper nature connection. He was the winner of the prestigious Helen Diller Award for Excellence in Education with his widely popular Fire Circle class. For over 10 years, he gathered hundreds of students around a fire to learn about ancestry, spirituality, responsibility, and impermanence. Day is also the founder of Legacy as Livelihood, a creative purpose mentor practice, and the Break Free Lab, a nationally touring workshop designed for creative and spiritually minded people who long to find their creative purpose and live a life devoted to serving their creative calling. While Day has been building earth altars his entire life, he has been building an altar every morning as a practice for the last five years inside Wildcat Canyon in Richmond, California. Inspired to share the benefits of this daily practice, he has gathered communities all over the U.S. and Canada to attend his altar and mandala-making workshops. To date, Morning Altars has inspired thousands of people of all ages, from all over the world, to create impermanent earth art. It is a daily practice that renews our relationship to wonder, creativity, nature, and impermanence. For listeners interested in viewing these beautiful works of impermanent art as we talk, They can be seen at morningalters.com or by following Morning Alters on Facebook or Instagram. It was also just announced that a Morning Alters book will be released in the fall of 2018 by Countryman Press. Day, 
Welcome to Precipice. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to hear my life displayed for me like that. (laughs) Happy to do it. Um, Well, so to get us started, your bio gave some background, but I'm wondering if you can speak a bit more about Morning Altars, the evolution of the practice over time leading up to where it is today. Sure. I mean, Morning Altars um, really as a daily practice uh, began in heartbreak. You know, that's how it started for me. I mean, yes, it started, as you said in your introduction, with me uh, as a five-year-old running out to my driveway and kind of adorning the wormholes, you know. And and yes, for about 15 years now, I've been making a birthday altar for my dearest friends. We gather inside of my house and since, uh, yeah, 15 years right now, this year will be um, when we sit around those those altars. But as a daily practice, as a practice of, of actually going outside every day and sitting in a spot and making some beauty every day, it's been, um, it's been since this breakup that you spoke to. And, um, and basically, so the story goes, um, I, I really just couldn't um, find any capacity or any, any motivation to really do anything at the time when I had this breakup. I mean, I was practicing yoga. I couldn't do yoga. I was meditating. I couldn't do meditation. Really, the only obligation that I felt like I was responsible to and had to do was walk my dog, Rudy. Mm -hmm. So every morning, I would just, you know, put her on a leash and drag my sorry butt out the door, and we would wander, you know, around dawn in the hills just because it was very quiet. I was having trouble sleeping. And uh, one morning we just, we went for a walk and we, we walked up to this beautiful hill that overlooks the Bay Area, one of the many hills in Wildcat Canyon. And it was one of those mornings that the, the fog was rolling in through the hills. And it just was, it was really magical moment, you know, it, in, even in my heartbreak, I was able to recognize that, like, wow, this is such a beautiful moment, you know, quiet and, and misty, and the, the eucalyptus trees were just swaying perfectly, uh, almost in har- harmony with the fog. And I sat my, myself down to my dog's chagrin and um, <laughs> noticed at the foot of this eucalyptus tree, there was this community of mushrooms, amber-colored mushrooms that were just glistening in the fog. And, and I don't know, maybe it was just habit or maybe it just was me trying to occupy myself at the time, but I started to rearrange the mushrooms. And I put in some eucalyptus caps and some bark and you know, basically whatever was around at the time. And, and I don't know how it happened, but an hour went by and it felt like a minute, and it was the first time in weeks that I wasn't feeling the incredible weight of my heart. And I came out of that hour, and I thought to myself, there's something happening here that was metabolizing the grief. Um, It was actually processing and digesting this heaviness. Um, And really, when it comes down to it, it was just really just about making something beautiful with my hands. Um, focusing on something other than myself for an hour and the beauty being the kind of digestive qualities of the, for the grief. And um, in that moment, I had some 
wisdom, some awareness to, to take a risk. And I said to myself, you know, something's here and can you commit in this moment um, to do this for 30 days? Just come back to this spot, you know, maybe grab a basket and collect things along the way and just make beauty just for an hour for 30 days, just as a way of trying to be with myself and the heaviness of that breakup. And, and so I did, um, you know, I took my dog and we went to the same tree and I collected different things along the way and I made you know, certain beautiful things, um, beautiful altars. And um, 30 days came and passed, and I didn't want to stop. I just, I couldn't. It was just, it was metabolizing something in my system, and I just kept on feeling like this is, this has purpose. Um, there's a balm, B-A-L-M, for my heart, and also it's activating some kind of creative energies that is just really healthy for me and connecting me to this new place I was living. And eventually I had, you know, because it was on a public path, I had neighbors and people trekking on the path kind of start to get used to me as a figure who was making beauty on that path. And so um, I haven't stopped you know, and that was about five years ago as a daily practice. And there's been hundreds, if not thousands of, of altars built um, and many stories and a lot of a lot of really valuable wisdom that's come out of this this little engine that could practice for me. And so I'm, you know, really humbled to be in this conversation right now and to be receiving the attention that this is um, just simply because you know, on it, its origin is just really was just this humble moment in my life of trying to work with my grief. And uh, it's turned into something that is, you know, part of it is is become a uh, international movement, I guess you would say, um, where people all over the world are building altars out of the places that they live out of the land that they live on and all the unique qualities of their home and their place and their stories and their desire to make meaning with their life. And then they're sending that to me through Instagram. And, you know, every day when I get these altars of other people inspired to make their own um, impermanent art pieces, I'm just, I'm floored, you know, it's just, it's such a incredible um, uh, creative uh, life that I'm living and and really really trying to get other people to in some ways to participate um, and connect with the place and the way that they're living and so I'm very humbled to be sitting where I am right now and and even more committed even more uh, devoted to this practice. Mm. It's it's such a beautiful story and and what strikes me most about it is how much listening you were doing as that all unfolded mm-hmm. and yeah. I'm wondering and 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 everything that I've seen of your work um, and and of the morning of, of the process of building morning altars there's a lot of listening uh, involved and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that and and also well let's let's start there sure I mean, the, I think that's very adroit of you to, to notice um, how much listening there's, there's happening. The whole the process um, for me is, is relational. So um, I don't go out with a plan. 
I don't go and say, I'm going to search for this, that, and this, and I already have an idea of what I'm going to make. I've already sketched it out, and I'm just going to execute the plan that I already know that I've made, and I just have to do it at this time and at this way. And there's nothing like that. And I've built altars that have been 30 to 40 feet big. That's taken four days, five days to build. And there's, they've never began with a plan. They've always begun with a collaboration and a willingness to participate in something that is um, purely collaborative, that is about me connecting to the time, the season, the place that I'm in, the plants that are around, the animals that are there. And I think a capacity to be, to exercise a state of wonder uh, and curiosity really um, speaks to um, you know, the, our capacity is to listen. And, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised with what I'm able to produce. <laughs> and I tell people that, um, you know, if I actually thought about it ahead of time, if I actually tried to sketch out what I was going to do, I mean, they would look ridiculous. They would, they would, they would look horrible in my opinion, you know, but the fact that there's, um, that I'm in many ways stepping outside of myself and trying to connect with many different elements and just trying to listen. And, you know, even when it comes to the color on the altars and what colors want to play together, you know, what shapes want to emerge. And, you know, I just spent like two days, the last two days building a piece here and by the Creek where I live. And, um, and there was a lot of both listening and a lot of, um, patience and frustration that was coming through because um, there was at times too much of me involved and I could feel it you know mm. I could feel myself in the way and I could feel the materials that I was working with trying pleading to be heard you know the colors really wanted to be heard the the shapes were trying to come through but I had I was really wrestling with myself and and half of the work is just staying in the game, you know, and just like, like if I can't listen, step away and then keep on coming back to a practice and a, and a commitment to listen. And, um, and that's really crucial for creative practice is, you know, if your foundation is, is practicing a capacity to listen to what is attempting to emerge through you, you know, you can't go wrong. I mean, you can stop listening, and you, the best thing you could do is be aware of that when that happens. But, you know, in terms of um, returning, it has to be to this place of, of listening and recognizing that it's, you know, something's working through you. And that's very much how I see my work, you know, in terms of uh, the places that I build. I build all over the world, and every place is different. And they all come with different materials, of course, but they all come with their own flavor and spirit and personality. And part of the, the genius of doing this work for me, the beauty is I get to connect with different places and recognize that like people, they all have their own ways. And they all have the certain ways they like to be approached, certain ways they like to be walked on and gifted and you know, so it's really learning the ways of the place, which I think in the dominant culture we live in is like kind of an abstract thing to consider. 
you know, in a time where you could basically travel all over America right now. And like, there have been many moments where I have said to myself, I could be anywhere, you know, like I'm driving mm-hmm. in a shopping center and I'm just like, I could be in Florida and I can be in, you know, California right now. I've, they look the same. And I think we have this way of connecting to a place from a human centric way where we wanted to, to feel comfortable and to be familiar but that's not place, you know, and so places are very unique and, and diverse and distinctive and and they require a lot of listening, a lot of connecting, um, no assumptions that you know where you are and a real capacity to, to, kind of, to bring some humility to the process and, and, you know, just spend some time, which is, you know, it's a rare thing for a modern human these days. It's just like spend some time. And so... You know, I, I really practice um, beginner's mind uh, or curiosity, intuition, wonder. Um, these are skill sets I practice. I'm writing about this in the book right now, you know, um, as a way, as an antidote to uh, some of the trouble of our time, which is a lot of self-direction, a lot of destination addiction, um, always thinking that we know where to go, or we know the right way. And, you know, as I said, with this practice, I, I the foundation of it is I don't know. And that's pretty exciting and terrifying at the same time. But it's how I proceed and it's I, I really credit that mindset to a lot of the beauty that emerges. Mm-hmm. You just you just spoke to not knowing as a big piece of this. And I'm wondering about you spoke earlier about um an awareness sometimes that there's too much of you in the way of what's trying to come through. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about what, what are the qualities that you notice when you are in the way and what are the qualities that seem to be present when the listening is happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that the interesting, the interesting piece of, um, what I do is I employ my perfectionism. I mean, if you look at my art, it's, it's some of it, <laughs> even my perfectionist right now is saying like, well, not all of it, but some of it is, <laughs> ra- is rather perfect. And I have to tell you, that's quite a feat when you're building on number one, un- uh, the ground is not flat. Okay. It's not flat. It's cracked. There's bumps, there's roots, there's bugs. The, the sun is killing flowers. The wind is blowing everything away. Um, no leaf is perfectly symmetrical with the other. I mean, it's really, really a feat to, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I'm just acknowledging that it's really a lot of labor and effort to, to make a piece look um, symmetrical and exact, it's really a feat. And at the perfect time of the day where the light is, no, 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 no. Okay. So I employ my perfectionist, but the perfectionist always reaches its limitation. So that's the beauty of this practice for me is that, you know, if I built inside my house on a, on a wood floor, I would work on a piece for weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. And if I didn't build out of living objects, you know, let's say I built with a, um, you know, not natural material, I would just keep, I would, my perfectionist would just have no boundaries and I would just 
work on some one thing endlessly. So the fact of working in the natural world, there's automatically limitations. The sun sets, for instance, you know, and then like my art usually does not survive the night. So there's animals that come eat it or the wind blows it away or, you know, whatever. And um, my perfectionist gets to practice being limited. And so when I experience myself in the way is when the perfectionist doesn't want the limitation. It doesn't want to accept any kind of limitation. It wants things to be its way. Now, as I said, I employ it. So I, I give it work to do and it loves it. And I feel like I'm really, you know, um, honoring a certain part of myself in a beauty making practice. But the times where I struggle or the times where, um, where it doesn't want to uh, accept or it doesn't want to acknowledge its limitation, number one, and then I'd say at the beginning of the process, the times where I really feel myself in the way, uh, if you can say it like that now, is um, when I completely doubt that I have any capacity to do it again. And so I'll sit down with that blank canvas. And this happened three days ago. As I said, I've made hundreds, if not thousands. And I sit down again with my material, with the canvas. I'm very familiar with, with the movements of my work. And I still have the voice that arises inside of me that says, um, well, maybe this time is not going to happen. You know, and so there's no, um, there's no willingness that arises. It's just a lot of fear that comes in. And, um, and so when that happens, as it did, as I said, as I said three days ago, um, my, my role becomes to invite that doubt and that fear and that um, hesitation, but like a deep hesitation, to a much more diverse experience. And so I don't disempower it or banish it or believe it's not there or try and run from it or anything like that. Um, what I do is I, in some ways, just um, sit with a little bit more um, commitment and gracefully say to it, hey, I hear you. I hear that you. this is what you believe. Um, there's something bigger happening right now. You're more than welcome to be here. Sometimes you really you know, push me in the right direction. Sometimes you don't. But there's other voices that are going to be equal to yours right now. And so, um, so that's just the way it's going to be. And you're more than welcome to express your voice as long as they can express theirs. And so I become, in a way, kind of a facilitator of diversity. And, um, and so you know, when I can't do that and I just am convinced that it's all one thing, like fear or doubt, that's also uh, times where I just completely lose it. And when I'm able to, to really, in some ways, court the diversity into my process, that's when I'm able to, um, to let something else through. And then, I'm, uh, then I have that next step of just, as I said, employing my perfectionist. And then that has its own challenges, too. So every step of the way comes with a lot of risk. No, not planning anything always comes with a great risk. There's no guarantee, you know, but I've become rather strong and skilled more and more 
well-practiced, I would put it, um, in a willingness to carry uh, the, the, the practice forward. So I'm committed is another way of saying it. And, um, and I get to practice, you know, sometimes mostly, you know, I've, I'm rather blessed, mostly uh, producing pieces that I'm in love with. And then occasionally not. And that's life. You know, it's being human. You don't always get what you want. Mm-hmm. You've, you've spoken a lot about um, some of the effects of doing this work in terms of running up against limitation. And, and the description that I've seen a few different times of the morning altars uses three words, impermanent, earth, art. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that each of those words is carrying a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and if we presume for a moment that, that the, or not even if we presume, it's clear that this process emerged from a type of listening. Mm-hmm. And so if this came to be because you were listening for something and something came through, it's interesting that this is what came through at this time and in this place. Totally. And yeah. I'd be curious to hear a bit. We're getting, uh, we're getting close to to break time. Actually, let's take a break and then we'll come back to this question because I don't want to have to truncate the answer. Sounds so good. So we're going to take a short break. My guest today is Day Shieldcret, visual artist, educator, creativity coach, and founder of Morning Altars, a practice of creating impermanent earth art that will be the subject of the forthcoming book, Morning Altars, published by Countryman Press. You can view examples of Morning Altars and learn more at morningalters.com. And you can follow Morning Altars on Facebook and Instagram. And we will be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible join us on this journey log on and subscribe to revolutionary wellness magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Day Shieldcret, visual artist, educator, purpose mentor, and founder of Morning Altars, a practice of creating impermanent earth art. You can learn more and view some beautiful Morning Altars at morningaltars.com or by visiting Morning Altars on Facebook and Instagram. 
before we jump at, into the earlier discussion, Day, I wanted to mention that you just announced that uh, Morning Alter's book is going to be coming out in fall 2018. I'm wondering if you can tell I, us a little bit about that. That's really sure. exciting. Yeah, I just announced it yesterday, actually. So we are hot off the presses right now. Um, yeah, this has been, um, I think it's been something that's been pleaded for, for the last few years. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just signed with the Countryman Press, which is owned by W.W. Norton. And we're coming out with the book in fall 2018. And the book is going to be a few different things, um, that are central to Morning Altars. I think the first thing, of course, is, Super rich, beautiful photographs of the altars, full bleeds. It'll have kind of an editorial feel to it. It's just, I want people to be enchanted um, with the photography. Um, so that's number one. And then the second piece of the book, in addition to stories that I will write about of, of um, interesting experiences of building out in nature, um, each chapter will be devoted to one of the seven movements of building an altar. So there's, I've, in my work, I've come to understand that there's seven movements to what I do. And each one of those movements is both um, a very uh, hands-on, um, tactile experience, you know, going out to wander, coming back, uh, clearing space, um, building the piece, you know, um, and walking away from it, letting it change, et cetera. But each of the seven steps isn't just a practical how-to piece. Each one of them also very much speaks to um, one of the, uh, I would say, deficiencies and struggles of our time as a modern human in the dominant culture of North America. Um, you know, this is a this time really is... Um, asking so much of us and giving us so many challenges in our life. And interestingly enough, each of these steps really addresses one or more of those challenges um, and offers a practice as to how to exercise another muscle um, before it atrophies from not using it in the, because of the culture doesn't ask for it. So we talked about one of them already, which was the capacity to be curious and and listen and wander you know and and in our culture you know as i said we have something called destination addiction which is always thinking that we need to know where we're going next i did a workshop a few weeks back in in manhattan um and i i pulled the group that was there there's quite a few number of, quite a few number of people there all new yorkers and I said, okay, we're learning about the first movement, which is about wandering and wondering and foraging. And I said, raise your hand if you are um, able, if you at least spend 30 minutes a day not knowing where you're going, where you just let yourself wander. No one raised their hand. I said, okay, how about 15 minutes? Still no one raised their hand. And I said, fine, let's really, let's, let's dial this down to five minutes a day, just wandering. No one raised their hand. And we were all really surprised by that. And I said to myself, so what I'm gathering here is that in every moment of your waking day, all of you think that you need to know where you're going. And I asked them the question, so what's lost when you act in this way? 
What gets lost? What skills do, are you not employing when you always think you need to know where you go? So in the book, I, I identify all of these different you know, struggles that we have as humans and, and help people understand that this practice is an approach to, um, to strengthening some of these muscles and skills. And then the third piece in the book, which I'm really excited about, is as I've mentioned, people are, you know, it's not just my art, even though I'm in love with my own art. You know, people all over the world are um, building morning altars, which is just incredible. And I get people that send me emails or Instagram messages of their pieces from places as far away as Australia and Brazil and Iran and England, Canada, uh, and, uh, and of course, inside of America. And people telling me their stories of how they built an altar to, on the anniversary of their mother's death, or they built an altar for their best friend's baby naming, or they built an altar because they lost their job and they wanted to mark the day and, and their uncertainty. And, and so the third piece in the book is going to be um, how, uh, people's stories from all over the world and photographs of their altars. And, um, and we'll be doing a submitting process for that. So, you know, I'll put out a call to your listeners, if anyone's listening right now that, that wants to try out this practice. Um, and you email me at day at morningalters.com or you go to my website and sign up for the, the list, the book list, um, you can submit your altar and your story and I'd love to include it in the book um, because this is not just about me. This is about a movement um, because I really believe this practice is needed right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've mentioned several ways that that it's needed in terms of capacities that are at risk of falling away and atrophying, like the capacity to wander, like practicing not knowing, like the ability to listen to a place. Um, I'm wondering if there's any others that leap out at you as you continue this practice yourself and as you are getting these stories rolling in from so many places, from so many people of, of what sorts of things are showing up that that seem to be needed right now. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, one of the, I have two that immediately come to mind. One of them is creativity. Um, we have a culture that basically is either putting creative people on this pedestal and saying, you know, only they can be creative. Um, and so we have oftentimes people that are trying to be creative, but they have all this doubt that comes up that says that they can't do it, they can't do it well, they can't do it right doesn't matter. You know, I tell people that try a morning altars practice, you can't mess it up. You know, you're just sitting and arranging leaves and berries and bark and feathers and you can't really mess it up. And so um, I'd say that one of the pieces that I really want to point out to people, um, and it's told through a story that happened, I think last summer I was touring with Wanderlust, which is a yoga and music festival. I was building pieces for them and and doing talks and workshops. And I gave a talk and this woman came up to me after the talk and she said, um, yeah, it was an amazing talk. Thank you so much. I'm not going to do the workshop, um, but thank you. It's been fun. And I said, can I ask why? And she said, yeah, you know, I'm honestly, I'm from New York and I'm a surgeon. I'm a, I'm a, a doctor. And, um, I'm just not creative, you know, I'm very practical, very practical person. And I, I just, there's nothing I can do that that's going to be creative. And so I just don't even want to attempt it. 
And I was like, okay, you know, um, you can't mess this up. You can't, you know? So I made a plea with her. And I said, will you just at least attempt it? And all I'm going to say to you is just once you gather material, will you just start in the center and ripple out? Will you just start tiny, just one, make a circle with something and then just start to build off of there? Will you at least uh, try it, please? And I'm pretty persistent. <laughs> so she eventually <laughs> agreed and... Um, and I let them go off and build. And at the end of our workshops, we do kind of an art tour, an altar tour, where we get to listen to everyone's stories of what it was like to build it. And we get to listen to what their, um, what their blessing is for the altar, because it always has a deeper meaning. It's not just about, you know, randomly making something. And so we happened to just go to her altar as the first one. And we looked down, and it's quite remarkable what I saw. And I said, okay, the floor is yours. Why don't you explain to us what, what this is and how it got made? And I think she got out maybe four words before she started to cry. And I, you know, we let her, we witnessed her cry, really witnessed her in her grief for just a, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And then she said, you know, I didn't think I could do this. But once I realized what I was doing, it was too late. And she said, and so I didn't even understand why I was doing this until right now. She said, but this altar is devoted to my parents who died. Both of them died this year. And she said, and I haven't had an opportunity to really grieve their loss and to tell their story. And she said, but I, I feel like I just did that with this image on the floor, on the earth. And she went on to ex talk about her parents and how there were symbols on the altar for them. And, and it was just this moment of like, wow, someone who really thought that they were not a creative person put their hands to something and were surprised by what came through. And all of this stuff came out, came through them. So that's just one piece of it. I have many stories like that that I can talk about. Mm -hmm. And then another piece, of course, to speak to the, the times that we live in is the piece of impermanence is to be able to create something so beautiful um, that, at least for me, I fall in love with every time. I look at the piece and I say, oh, man, I so wish this could last forever. I so wish I could just have all my friends here right now and people could see it in person. And, and I know that I, that I can't. And, you know, I was asking myself that this morning when I woke up. You know, I actually had this question in my mind. Um, you know, why create anything? if you know it's not gonna last. Mm -hmm. I actually asked myself that this morning. And I really believe the response is found in the time and place that we are living in right now. You know, at such a time of uncertainty and such a time of not knowing where we're going. You know, why is relating to something being impermanent, knowing it's not gonna last, why is that actually, that relationship, a skill? Why is it needed right now? You know, I have many stories of, of times where I've, I've spent eight hours building something and then in two seconds, the wind comes and sweeps it away. Mm -hmm. And there's a skill that I'm, because I'm practicing it every time it happens, it doesn't mean I'm get, it's getting easier. It just means I'm cultivating a little bit more grace in my response to the uncertainty and change.
So when I'm when I experience uncertainty or I experience the impermanence of my art, um, you know, as opposed to approaching it like an amateur, where like it happens and I'm totally like surprised and I can't believe it and I'm really only just you know being in this in what I want and my preference for things and I'm fighting the impermanence of it. I I go in already knowing this practice is impermanent. That you know, of the hundreds and thousands, of the hundreds or thousands of pieces that I've built, um, none of them remain. I mean, yes, there's photographs of them, but the actual uh, earth, the berries, the bark, the leaves, they're all returned back to the earth. And there's something really, um, uh, very, very um, healthy, human about seeing that happen you know all of the thing the thing that you love knowing it's not going to last forever and loving it anyway and you mentioned at the beginning of of the show you know um that i and you also learned with uh stephen jenkinson of the orphan wisdom school and that's you know i i've learned a lot of that from him you know the capacity to see to love something and to know it's not going to last forever. And, um, and so this practice is deeply aligned with that. And I believe, especially today, you know, with all the uncertainty of, around our political uncertainty and, um, you know, war and, um, you know, the, our economic climate and everything. I mean, there's, it's, in the air, it's thick in the air right now. I mean, this is, I, I think, what your show is devoted to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and yet, you know, the thing that's never changed is that it's always been impermanent. And life's always been uh, that it's not going to last forever. And yet our purpose in this life is to make sure that it continues beyond us. It continues beyond our life. And so that's the ripples I'm looking to uh, put out into the world, especially with this art, is you know, how can beauty feed life? And how does it, what does it mean to make something that's not going to last and to still do it anyway? And, um, and so therefore, I'm really charging everyone listening and myself included, reminding myself that there's deep purpose in making something impermanent and remembering that it's, you know, it's temporary. I mean, every relationship that we're in is, is in some way it's impermanent. And to practice, um, to being inside of that um, recognition, it's a really a different way of, of being alive. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're, the, the lessons in impermanence are coming for us, whether we are ready or not, right? And so there's something important about practicing yeah and mm-hmm. and living as though those things are coming and we're seeing it even just with the flooding in Houston and the and the hurricanes and the forest fires that that we don't we don't get to escape that that nothing lasts yeah and you yet know? we also don't get to um, stop proceeding with beauty making Mm-hmm. And I think the key is where those two things meet. 
knowing something's not going to last or knowing we're in at the edge, at the precipice of uncertainty and, and making beauty there, making something gorgeous at that edge. As you said, I used to work in the theater um, and I've seen some a little bit of great theater and a lot of terrible theater. And I think this is true for most art that I've witnessed in my lifetime. So much of it is not built at that edge. Mm-hmm. It's not built at the edge of not knowing. It's built someplace safe and with too much knowing. And I have committed my life and I'm, uh, I'm pleading with, many people that are listening to me to consider building your beauty at the edge of uncertainty. Build your beauty there. And yes, fear is there. And yes, doubt is there. And as I said, it's all there. There's also incredible magic and, and aliveness that lives there. And that place needs our beauty. And there's an incredible amount of skill and grace and well-practiced human making that occurs at that edge. And so, you know, that's what I'm doing every day is my little edge. I go to my little edge of the creek. I put down a little altar. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I have no idea what it's going to look like until probably a minute before it's done. And then I'm racing with the sun to photograph it. And, and then I let it go. And I let it go at the edge of the creek. And it goes back to becoming you know, kind of things that the squirrel eats or um, it goes back to being a part of the big mess at the base of the redwood tree here or, you know, it goes back to just being just more of what the earth is made from. And yet for that brief moment, it was some beauty that I had my hands in. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's clear it's so clear how dedicated you are to this practice <laughs> and how 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 much you've given yourself over to this. Mm-hmm. And I and one of the things that it's I It's crazy and always... you know when you think <laughs> about it it's absolutely I mean who else is doing what I'm doing? It's a <laughs> very bizarre thing to give yourself to but you know apparently I really love um, I'm just so moved by this this what feels like a very old thing that is a, that's trying to come into in, into the world in a very new way. I mean, if you think about it, um, almost every indigenous culture that's been on this planet has had some form of making beauty with the earth. It's just been a way. I mean, from in India, Rangolis, in Peru, despachos, in North America, medicine wheels. I mean, every, I can go on, you know, every culture that has had a connection to the planet as their way of life has made beauty with her. And, um, and it's a very old way of praying. It's a very old way of connecting. Uh, it's a old, very old way of um, people, people um, connecting with the places that they live, but also an old way of people making meaning with the times that they live in. And, uh, and that really, aside from this, the 1960s and 70s with, you know, people like Andy Goldsworthy, who is um, making ephemeral art, you know, to get out of the museum, to bring the art back to the impermanent. Um, it hasn't really, you know, been a collective cultural practice for us. And so my mission, as you said, I'm d- deeply devoted to, to 
um, asking people that, hey, the next time you're at the beach or the next time you're sitting in a park with your kids, make something. See what happens, you know, and see if there's meaning that's made when you make something. And I bet you there will be. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I had to say that. No, I'm glad you said it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what I was, I, I was going to ask a question about what, what it looks like on a day-to-day basis to give yourself over to a particular purpose. In, in that, I think a lot of, for me at least, especially in the days of the internet, and Facebook, where we often see photographs or images or stories about the moments of completion, yeah, or the moments of accomplishment, or the and we we're not there for the waking up at three in the morning and wondering what the hell you're doing, mm-hmm. or or just you know going to the grocery store and buying groceries. And I'm wondering, on a day to day basis, what what does it look like and what does it take to tend this purpose that's been handed to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It changes. You know, like when you have a baby, tending to the baby is very different than tending to a four-year-old or tending to a 10-year-old. So there's different developments of this baby. You know, I mean, really the first year of its life, it was just about keeping it alive. <laughs> You know, it's just about feeding it and making sure that it's like still breathing, still alive and loving it. Um, So there's a lot more freedom, a lot more, you know, connection. At times right now, I feel like I'm, you know, tending to an adolescent. You know, some of the time it's just fiery and passionate. Sometimes it wants to be left alone. Mm -hmm. So it's really listening to, um, to the art and the practice um, as to where it is in its in in how it, where it is in its life and where I am in mine and and so you know at, like a parent with a teenager, you know sometimes there's real connection and sometimes there's real disconnection and it's learning how to speak to this child as it's changing, you know and I think a lot of parents struggle with that you know in some ways they like to see. They like to communicate to their kid or they choose to at a time when they felt that they were close. And a lot of parents struggle with how to evolve with their child and evolve their relationship. And I think that's, that's part of the practice right now for me is um, as this practice evolves, as it grows up, you know, as it becomes a book, as I'm doing more interviews, as I become more uh, responsible to it in a public forum, um, how can my relationship with this daily practice also evolve? And what does it need to eat, <clears throat> excuse me, and to stay healthy and to stay, um, uh, and to stay in some ways deeply authentic to the original spirit of why it wants to be in the world? And, um, and that's, that's a new way of walking for me, um, which is to really make sure that I'm, um, always returning to the spirit of the work. And so what that means is getting outside every day and walking around, even though maybe I think I know my neighborhood, you know, just walking around again as if I don't. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll build a piece and I'll just be like, did I build something like this? And always pushing my edge to net, to always never, you know, to never take the, um, the easiest route. I'm always trying to push to new ways of expression. And I think that that's very akin to how a parent is with a child, uh, especially teenagers. As you said, I work with teenagers. So, you know, I know some of the struggles of, a, of, of being a parent of that age. And I also am very aware of, of a lot of the struggles of being a teenager. And a lot of it is expression and, and being seen and being able to communicate with each other. And so I feel very akin to that right now in, in my work, which is um, how do I continue to um, take care of this um, child or the spirit of this work and at the same time really let it speak of itself, really let it come into its own um, and always stay limber and flexible and to really, um, you know, innovate as much as I can and stay persistent, not, you know, not abandon it, but really stay with it as, as much as possible. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm growing leaps and bounds from this work and it's not easy. As I said, you know, creating without a plan is not an easy uh, path, but I really believe it, it serves me. It serves it's what we're, what we're being asked how to proceed in this time and place is like, you know, there's no plan right now. I mean, a lot of people think they have one, but really we don't know where we're going collectively. And we need skill sets to be able to navigate um, a time that doesn't require the, the, um, the place, the time that we live in to be certain. Yeah. You know, it requires us to become so flexible and curious and um, and sensitive to the time that we live in that we can properly navigate this well, time. Thank you so much, Day. I have we have to end, unfortunately, but thank you so much for being here, for evolving this work over many years and giving yourself over to it so that it might serve the world. I look forward to following your ongoing creation. I, I'm so happy to be here and to have shared this time together. My guest today has been Day Shieldcret, founder of Morning Altars. You can learn more about Morning Altars at morningaltars.com or follow Morning Altars on Instagram and Facebook. And keep your eyes peeled for the Morning Altars book scheduled to be released in fall of 2018 by Countrymen Press. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with Scott Morris of Ithacash, an alternative currency taking root in Ithaca, New York, that can teach us how different economic models can serve our communities. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. 